Check this out. Here's Legal AF. This is actually streamed three days ago, but I don't think I saw the whole thing. Legal AF. Nice touch. Thanks for 112k, man. We're almost 113. Why December? Why December? Why is this going faster? Because the judge understands that there's going to be a lot of motion practice and likely appeals in this case because of the um, the nature of the prosecution and, the, frankly, the nature of the defendant. And so nine months between now and then allows the, the inevitable motion to dismiss the indictment practice, the motion to attack the grand jury minutes and the, and the entire charging process that was used by Alvin Bragg, um, and then get through an appellate process, one or two levels of appeal in New York, either the first level appeal of the first department for Manhattan, or at the ultimate appeal for the highest level court in New York, which is the Court of Appeals. And then that's about nine months. It takes about six or eight months to get all that done. And then let's be right back here in December when all appeals are done, the indictment is, I've, res, I've resolved the indictment issues. They make a motion to move the case to Staten Island, and the judge, I'm sure, will deny it. Um, we'll watch Donald Trump to see if he needs to be gagged from now until then. So it's about the right amount of time. I know everybody's upset um, about, you know, let's go to trial in three months, but none of these cases are going to trial in three months. I just did a hot take on a, on a guy who interfered with, the 2016 election and Hillary Clinton getting elected, and he just got convicted in a court of law now, seven years later. So things are moving as about as, as quickly as they need to, and there's a lot of work for both sides, prosecution and defense, between now and December. I think what the judge wants, Ben, Judge Bershon wants, is he wants sort of everything cleared away, and all he's got to do is deal with setting the trial and all of that. In the meantime, Trump leaves leaves the courtroom and goes right back at a press conference or whatever he did in that ballroom, attacking the, the, uh, the judge, his, his surrogates attacking and doxing daughters of the judge and family members of the judge. And let me just leave it on this and turn it back to you. Most courts and most judges run for election. Some at the highest level in some states are appointed by the governor, but even that is political. Most judges, and in New York especially, Florida too, California, I believe, as well, they run for office, usually under a party flag. Either they're Democrats, Republicans, or they're independents. So to say he's a Democrat or this prosecutor who's also an elected position is a Democrat, right, that doesn't mean you have to align only Republican prosecutors, as one of our producers said today, uh, Salty. It, are we in the world now where only Republicans can prosecute Republicans and Republican judges can hear those cases and Democrats, Democrats? No, that's not how our justice system works. And I'm sorry that everybody's just waking up on the far, far MAGA right to understand that we have an elected judiciary where there are Democrats that serve in office as law enforcement prosecutors and on the bench, but that's the world that we live in. Just like we have to put up on the other side of the aisle with, you know, Clarence Thomas, we'll talk about it later, you know, um, being in bed with mega MAGA uh, donors for the last 20 years, along with his wife. And I'd push back on that slightly, though, because what we should have to deal with, it is okay that there are judges or and justices who come from 
the side of Republicans, just as it is okay that there are judges and justices who come who are Democrat, uh, who are backed by the Democratic Party. The issue with Clarence Thomas, though, of course, is that is exactly what should be avoided. That is not just unethical, that not only is he appointed by a Republican, uh, but the fact that he's receiving millions and millions of dollars in gifts from Republican donors, tainting his ability to be a fair and impartial judge. I mean, set aside the mere fact that uh, the appearance of impropriety is something that should be avoided on the bench. You've got Justice Clarence Thomas just out there taking private jets and uh, private jet flights and pri and super yacht trips to, to you know you know traveling around on exotic islands and wearing T-shirts that has the name of the yacht, the Michaela, and going to these exclusive retreats like each and every each and every summer. I mean. Yeah, they're right there for those watching. That's that's one of the ways ProPublica was able to identify this on Clarence Thomas. He, he wears the shirts of all of the summer trips that they go on. It has a photo of the yacht. So it would say the Indonesia trip, the Greek island trip, so on uh, and so forth. Popak, I'll make this observation, too, about the December date and about the speed in which this the Trump case is moving at. I can just say from my own experience, it's actually moving faster than other criminal cases that I'm aware about. You mentioned the case that was in the, uh, you know, that, that relates to election disinformation uh, in the Hillary Clinton election that now just went to trial. Um, I'm familiar with cases that five, seven, eight, ten years before they go to trial. And the judges now are on to Donald Trump's delay tactics, though, so they are moving these cases much quicker. I do not expect these Trump cases to go that far. Like, I would expect uh, this case to, you know, probably go to trial sometime in 2024. That December date, I think, is going to be a, a meaningful date, and the court's going to have a very short leash. The same way uh, Judge Arthur Ngoron had a very short leash. Judge Arthur Ngoron uh, another Manhattan judge in the uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James civil fraud case who set a October 2nd, 2023 uh, trial date and said, this is etched in stone. You're not moving this at all. We know your dilatory and delay tactics. This ain't moving. And by the way, all of these dates actually line up very nicely because be before that December hearing, what we're going to see, going back to your whiteboard there, Popak, is you're going to have the E. Jean Carroll case, and you're going to see a lot more of Donald Trump sitting in a court with his arms crossed like that, um, because he's likely going to have to show up to that trial. Um, and then you're going to see the New York Attorney General Letitia James case as well, um, where that civil fraud case, there's a criminal investigation taking place as well um, by Alvin Bragg. Uh, into the, the criminal conduct about that. So depending on how the jury rules there, I think one of the things Alvin Bragg is waiting on for those bigger charges, the fraudulent valuation and the tax crimes that Trump engaged in, is what's going to happen with that jury uh, in the New York AG case? How are they going to rule? Uh, and is Donald Trump, and if there's a finding that Trump engaged in 
this fraudulent valuation scheme in the New York AG case, I think that's when you'll see the criminal charges also brought by Alvin Bragg, which are even more serious criminal charges here. I know you got one final observation, yeah. Popak, and then what the next Yeah, the, the checkerboard you're talking about is really, really important. First to indict doesn't mean first to try. And then we've got the federal versus, <clears throat> pardon me, federal versus state interaction here. I'm, I've done a hot take and will do a hot take on, even if you indicted first, who do I think is going to try first? And where does Jack Smith, who, who may come out of the shoot third, but he may end up being first in line for his prosecutions, depending upon what he does. The other thing about the December date for Trump that I want to mention is I think it leaves plenty of time for what I predict will be a superseding indictment or an amended indictment. Because if you, there's a little bit of a mismatch, and Karen Freeman Agnifilo, our co-anchor, did a nice job talking about it on Wednesday's show, between the statement of facts, which is not technically the indictment, and the indictment, which is the 34 felony charges, all for business record fraud and tampering of the books and records, the check register, the general ledger. And the way they get it up to a felony is the second fraud, the second crime, which could be a misdemeanor, <clears throat> pardon me, as well, is um, either tax evasion, if you read the statement of claim, the statement of facts, tax evasion, or election fraud, state or federal, or something like that. The reason I'm a little bit loose on it is because the statement of facts talks about conspiracy, but there's no conspiracy count yet in the indictment. The statement of facts talks about tax issues, tax fraud and manipulation by taking a deduction for legal expenses paid to Michael Cohen when it wasn't really that, it was a payment to Stormy Daniels. So eventually I think we're going to have, as this case develops, over the next period of time, as the statement of facts merges into um, the uh, indictment, as things that Alvin Bragg said in his own press conference about conspiracy end up in the indictment, I think we're going to see a conspiracy count. I think we're going to see more flesh on the bone in the indictment. But he doesn't have to do that. Everyone's like, it's so bare bones and skeleton, the, the skeletal, the indictment. Right. Because you want to have a very small target to shoot at when the other side moves to dismiss the indictment. Put in your bare minimum, put the rest over in the statement of facts. But I think then before December, we'll see a superseding amended indictment that will bring in things like a conspiracy count. In addition to right now, we have the 34 counts of falsifying of business records, essentially each of the checks being separate counts. And that's, you know, ultimately. And by the way, Karen Friedman Agnifilo predicted that perfectly. And you think the superseding indictment will add additional conspiracy counts. So there may be additional counts added even before that December date. And so we will keep everybody uh, posted there. Some big wins by special counsel Jack Smith that really spelled big trouble for Donald Trump. I want to talk about that. But first, let's take this quick break. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. The last few years especially have been a wild ride filled with my own personal self-realizations and growth. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding. Because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I personally have benefited directly from therapy, allowing me to talk through and work through experiences in my past that were unknowingly having a major impact on the way I go about my day-to-day. -day. Hi everyone, Mark Barton here at Sandy Hook Thomas. 
December 14th, 2012. So if you got a chance to get in, 93 year old chairman of They were unknowingly having a major impact on the way I go about my day to day. GLP.com slash legal AF. Popak, you sold me on that better. You, you should be their spokesperson, not just for legal AF, but in, I didn't in need, general. You I didn't need it. And, spokesperson. I didn't need it until the Trump era. <laughs> then, I need, then I really needed it. Well, now we got special counsel Jack Smith, which, you know, in, in its way is very cathartic as well. And so special counsel Jack Smith had some really big wins this week in the multiple criminal investigations of Donald Trump. I mean, you know, it, it felt like a footnote this week. But when you think about it, you've got a former vice president of the United States saying, I am not going to appeal any." order which required me uh, to testify before a criminal grand jury against a former president. Okay, like let's just former vice president testifying against a former president in a criminal grand jury. And that Normal. seemed like a footnote in the week. And we, we, we've talked about it here on Legal AF, just what that was even about. So um, Pence tried to argue that under the speech and debate clause, which basically gives uh, a, an immunity to uh, members of the House of Representatives and senators who engage in legitimate legislative activity from having to testify in any other forum other than what their normal duties and roles are um, as members of the House of Representatives and, and, and the Senate. In other words, they don't have to testify in other proceedings at all if they were engaged in legitimate legislative activity. And Pence argued well, uh, the Constitution says that vice presidents are also the president of the Senate, and there's this ceremonial role, so I should be treated as a senator, and my conduct was legitimate legislative activity, so I don't want to testify at all, because I'm basically like a senator. What we said here on Legal AF when he made that objection um, is it's ridiculous, but what we said the judge was probably going to do, and this is exactly what the judge did, is said, look, for the small time period where you have this ceremonial role as president of the Senate, where you were just counting the electoral votes on January 6th, sure, you don't have to testify um, about what that what that process was like. But that's a pretty contained process. We all know what happened there. And that's not really the information that Jack Smith or I think the public really cares about. And what Judge Boesberg, who's the new chief judge in uh D.C. federal courts who oversees these grand juries who made this very big ruling. It was really the first big ruling by Chief Judge Boesberg. You may all recall we used to talk about the rulings from Judge Beryl Howell, who used to be the chief judge, and uh, Judge Beryl Howell's term as being the chief judge ended. Uh, judge uh, Jeb Boesberg became the new chief judge. Boesberg's an Obama appointee. And Boesberg basically said, sure, for that time period where you are in that ceremonial role, you don't have to testify about that. But all of the other communications with Donald Trump leading to the insurrection, after the insurrection, when you were, you know, in your role as a vice president, you have to testify there. There's no way. Pence didn't assert executive privilege. Trump asserted executive privilege, and Trump lost that one, you know, right away. That was not a, a winner of an argument. Um, and Judge Boesberg said, you got to testify about everything else. So Pence, that's what Jack Smith wanted anyway. So Pence is going to be testifying very soon before 
a uh, criminal grand jury in Washington, D.C., which is monumental. And as we've been saying here on Legal AF, you don't get that ruling of Pence unless you're diligent and build this case brick by brick by brick. And I know there's so many people who are frustrated about the pace and the speed of this, but just think, if you didn't have all of these other wins that we've been talking about on Legal AF now for over a year, right? Like, if you don't get former Vice President Pence's top advisors to testify, right? Like, his former Chief of Staff, Mark Short, and his former General Counsel, Greg Jacob, right? If you don't get the wins where Donald Trump tried to block the testimony of his former top lawyers, like Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, if you don't kind of keep getting those wins and building and building and building, you don't get the testimony of former Vice President Mike Pence. And so for anybody out there who was saying, you know, Merrick Garland or Jack Smith, they should have filed this nine months ago. Would you really want to have sacrificed the testimony of all of the key witnesses? You, you don't want their testimony? Like, there is a practical aspect of being a prosecutor and being a trial lawyer where you have to introduce admissible evidence. And not only do you have to introduce admissible evidence, when you're in front of a jury, you've got to present them with the best evidence. And there are jury instructions that just even ask the jury, hey, if a party was capable of bringing a witness and they did not, you can hold that against them. And you better be damn sure if you didn't get the testimony of Pence or Cipollone or Philbin or Hirschman or any of these people or some of the big wins that, Popak, you're going to talk about some other wins that the uh, special counsel Jack Smith had. I guarantee you what Trump's lawyers would have said is, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Jack Smith had the opportunity to bring these individuals in, but he rushed the case. He rushed it, and he did not bring in. Therefore, there is reasonable doubt you will have to find. You have no choice but to find uh, Donald Trump not guilty here. And then imagine the fallout from that. So I just want to put it in that context. But Popak, give us some of the other big news and wins by special counsel. Yeah, you're, so, you're so right about all of that. I mean, when you have 1,000 people that you're prosecuting, another 1,000 that the Department of Justice has told Chief Judge Boasberg that they're going to be bringing. We're not done with the Jan 6 indictments. The first 950 are in. Are in. Half of them have already been convicted. 40 different trials by the Department of Justice. And then you've got these other prosecutions. Jack Smith and his people are like 40 and 0, 40 and 0 in front of some combination of Farrell Howell and uh, Boasberg. Uh, well, now one with Bozberg on all of these major issues. He could not have done that, as you said, Ben, a year and a half ago or two years ago. And he will. And it's not just about getting an indictment. Indictments are important. It's about winning a case at trial. And so you have to have the evidence now developed so that you can do that. And that's what he's doing. And the last thing on Pence, and I'll move over to the seven other people that have to be paraded in to the grand jury now who fought and lost and were and an appellate court told him, get into the grand jury because you're testifying in record time. All the things we know from the Jan 6 committee, and even Pence's own memoir, his own book, he's going to have to testify to, under oath to a grand jury, about the pressure that Donald Trump placed on him, um, the threats against him by Donald Trump, calling him the P-word, saying that the hanging of Mike Pence was an appropriate reaction, trying to get him to, to participate in the fake elector scandal um, and scheme. Um, the mental state of Donald Trump leading into Jan 6th 
during Jan 6th and after Jan 6th, um, his conversations with these lawyers around Donald Trump related to these issues, the Secret Service trying to whisk um, uh, Pence away and Pence refusing so he could go do his job and, and, and certify the election. That's all coming out in front of the grand jury. Plus, whatever, whatever Jack Smith's prosecutors have developed from other witnesses and other videos and social media and witness testimony that they're going to put in front of um, put in front of him and that have his fingerprints on it. So, um, as you said, we can't. It's hard to keep ca calling everything blockbuster and breakthrough and and breaking. But this is a big thing. First time in our history, a vice president will effectively be testifying against a president of the United States in a criminal matter. And now, right behind him, because a three judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court, a different three-judge panel. We talked about one related to Evan Corcoran two weeks ago, related to what we think is the Mar-a-Lago grand jury, where they, in 72 hours record time, had the, both sides brief the issue, the Department of Justice and, and uh, Trump's lawyers and Corcoran's lawyers, and make the ruling. This went even faster. The D.C. Circuit, as Karen Freeman Agnipolo said on one of our podcasts, yeah, it's just the appellate court has had enough with Donald Trump and is now giving him hours to do what normally would take months. You want to appeal? Sure. You got 24 hours to do it. Let's go. And so they literally gave Trump filed an emergency appeal to stop Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, Stephen Miller, his national security team of Robert O'Brien, John Ratcliffe and Ken Cuccinelli um, and others. And the three judge panel, which was two Obama and one Trump, which was um, Millett, Judge Millett, Judge um, uh, uh, Wilkins, and Judge Katsis, we, what we think is in a 3-0 decision, said you got two hours, Department of Justice, to tell us what your position is. Literally two hours, Ben, and the Department of Justice was ready. Ready. <laughs> In two hours, Ben, and the Department of Justice was ready, ready, working on those typewriters, those computers. Two hours they filed, and the appellate court took a look at it and said, right, emergency appeal denied. And all of you guys get your stuff, get your butts into the chairs in the grand jury. And that's been happening since the end of last week into next week. And none of them, apparently, are going to be taking an appeal. And neither is Donald Trump, because we keep talking about, over the course of 200 episodes or more of Legal AF, about the right-wing MAGA majority, supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court. And that is true. And really bad things have happened because of it, whether we talk about women's rights, abortion, the rights of, uh, on immigration policy, and all the other terrible rulings in criminal justice and civil rights that have come out of this court. But the one place where Donald Trump does not have home court advantage is everything related to his presidency, his papers, Mar-a-Lago, testimony, that apparently uh, even the right wing of the Supreme Court is not in his favor. And now Donald Trump, on at least two separate occasions in the last month, has said, pass when it comes to trying to do an appeal to the Supreme Court. So you have, for example, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, you got former Director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe, you got former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, you've got 
former top aide Stephen Miller, you got former deputy chief of staff and social media director Dan Scavino, you got former aide Nick Luna, you got former aide John McKinty, you got former DHS official Ken Cuccinelli, who, by the way, already has done has testified now before the grand jury after uh, that ruling. I believe he testified middle of last week. But the reason also why that order is handed out so quickly right there is because all of this precedent has already been established that Trump is not entitled to executive privilege, right? He's trying to argue that he's got this executive privilege claim, that that's what keeps these communications confidential. And the law has been very clear and has now been ruled on with these prior objections that he's made before this batch of witnesses that, no, number one, you're the former president. You're not the current president. So on that basis alone, you shouldn't be able to assert executive privilege. You know, there's a narrow, narrow, narrow line of kind of undeveloped case law where it is possible a former president can assert executive privilege in interbranch disputes, maybe. This isn't an interbranch dispute. It's the current executive branch wants information, and it's a criminal investigation. So former executive can assert it against the current executive branch, where the current executive branch is not asserting executive privilege. And even if Trump was able to assert it, even if Biden, let's say Biden wanted to assert it, which Biden's not asserting it, Biden is saying, um, why would I assert executive privilege where the assertion relates to someone trying to overthrow our Constitution? It's the exact opposite of what the constitutional duties are of a United States president. But even assuming you could assert it, it can be uh, overruled if the Department of Justice shows a compelling need and a compelling interest in their criminal investigation. And of course, they're able to show it there. So it's a real frivolous objection at this point to even assert executive privilege. But going back to what I said before, brick by brick by brick, you have to build these wins in order to get to the place where we are today, where the federal courts just like to Trump. Stop wasting our time. These people got to testify. So just imagine again that you go do trial for everybody who was like, we need to file this case nine months ago. Okay, so you want to go to trial without Pence, without Meadows, without Ratcliffe, without O'Brien, without Miller, without Luna, without McKenty, without Cuccinelli? Okay, that is the height of prosecutorial malpractice, if that's what you wanted to do. But that is why, look, Legal AF is an important show, because we have to really talk about those types of issues. Because it's very easy for me to just say to you, yeah, you know, screw it. Garland's taken way too long. Screw it. But I'm. But what? And and to some extent, I feel the pain. I I do. I I I wish it went faster. But what Garland had been doing, and then what Jack Smith did when he took over, is you've got to build these things to where we are today, where you can't poke any holes in it because Donald Trump is the ultimate hole poker and he's got all his people out there trying to poke holes and, and, and do all of that. So this is great, great prosecutorial work. Popak, I want to move on to the next big D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals victory right now. Um, and we talked about this here as well, this obstruction of an official proceeding charge. It is a critical, critical charge in the toolkit of federal prosecutors, and you had this Trump-appointed judge, Carl Nichols. I think this is going to be a theme in this episode, because when we talk about the ruling by the Trump judge in Texas, 
who just uh, blocked the FDA's 2000 approval of Mifepristone, a Trump-appointed judge. This is why elections have consequences. And by the way, you go back and you look at those debates between Trump and Hillary Clinton, she warned about every one of these things over and over again in those debates. But Popak, you want to walk us through what, why this D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals yeah. ruling was so important. And also the composition of this panel was interesting, though, because it did seem like the Biden judge here, Justice Pan on the Circuit Court of Appeals, got one of the Trump judges, though, to move over into and a very young Trump judge, one of these really inexperienced Trump judges who's basically like my age, who is, do you think he's two years older than me, who Donald Trump appointed? Um, who, who, by the way, at least I like went to trials. Like this lawyer, I don't think had any trial experience, you know, he was appointed by, by Donald, and he has this position in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But Judge Pan, a Biden appointee, I think moved this judge in the right place. Can you discuss what happened? Yeah, well, let's start at the top. Um, and, I'll, and we'll talk about that judge, Judge Walker, whose main experience before he took the bench and being appointed by Trump was to be the apologist for uh, Brett Kavanaugh when Brett Kavanaugh's candidacy um, uh, was in was taken on a lot of water for sexual assault charges that were being made against him. He went on TV 115 times to defend Brett Kavanaugh. So he's a far right person, but. Pan, who's the, the first um, Asian Pacific woman to ever serve in that position, appointed by Biden, who wrote the majority decision, she you know she had to get another vote. And Katsis, who is a right MAGA Trumper, was never going to go her way. So she found a way to thread the needle and get um, Walker to join her. The reason this is so important is because every judge in every judge in the D.C. Uh, circuit that is hearing all of these Jan 6 cases, these 500 or so that are scheduled ultimately either settle by plea or go to trial, every one of them except for Judge Nichols has found that the there, there's two giant charges, two big hammers the Department of Justice uses um, in the process that are appropriately charged. One is seditious conspiracy and sedition and all of the major penalties related to that. But they reserve that for a small group, maybe 15 or 20 total, of the entire 2,000 that attacked the Capitol, who really fit, fit the bill, fit the elements of seditious conspiracy. The, the second biggest claim that they use in the appropriate uh, matters is the obstruction of official proceeding 18 U.S.C. 1512 of our code, which really came out of the Enron scandal, but has been applied in all sorts of criminal cases. If somebody uses obstructive conduct or corruptly obstructs the proceeding, the proceeding being the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol, stopped the count of the electoral count and the certification of the electoral count under the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. As we all know well from the Jan 6 Committee and the video, all members of Congress had to flee for their lives, Republican included, belly crawling, army crawling to get out of the room, being whisked away by, by whatever was left of the Capitol Police that wasn't fighting on the steps and in the tunnels and in the portico to get them to safety, including Mike Pence, who ran off, and there's video of all that, and Josh Hawley and all of that. 
Okay, while that was going on, what wasn't going on was the certification of the election at that very moment. And so the Department of Justice and every judge but Judge Nichols agreed. Not only that, there's already been convictions. There's people that have both pled guilty to this charge, which is a 20-year felony, up to 20-year felony conviction, or have had a jury of their peers find that they they violated the statute. So if Judge Nichols' position held, and he took a very narrow reading that you and I talked about at the time, Ben, you know, eight, nine months ago, took a very narrow reading that the only way this particular obstruction count could apply is literally if they interfered with the physical ballots, like the pieces of paper going into the box, being certified and gaveled by by the clerk and by Pence, that if you're not like getting near or touching, obstructing those ballots, those pieces of paper, then whatever you're doing outside, even though you blew up the room and you stopped the proceeding, that's not going to be obstruction. And that was such a narrow interpretation of what that really said, literally, that we were all scratching our head like, what is he talking about? That can't be the only scenario in which that statute applies. And the three-judge panel, including now Judge Walker, a Trumper who sided with Judge Pan two to one to vote that Nichols was wrong, said, look, if you look at the statute, there's three interpretations that are being offered. The government's interpretation, which is the most reasonable one, is that the words on the page say what they mean. They mean what they say. They say that if it's an obstruction, um, obstructive conduct, um, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals, or otherwise obstructs or impedes any official proceeding. Well, that's easy. The Congress certifying the election's official proceeding. The actions outside were intended and, in fact, did stop and impede that proceeding from happening. How else do you explain everybody running and crawling out of that chamber? Okay, so that's that was the DOJ's position. We, we stopped there. Read the language. The, uh, the opponent, the three defendants, all of whom uh, were charged, at least one charge, of actually uh, fighting with and beating Capitol Police. So these, these were the worst of the worst. They said, well, we think it's even, we, we think it has to be like impeding the ballot counting or any other type of counting, any kind of evidence impairment, and there's no evidence impairment. And so the court said, well, I see you're trying to make an evidence impairment or ballot impairment. That's not what it says. And of those three interpretations, the most reasonable one is the Department of Justice, and that's the one we're going with. Now, look, there was 127 pages, and we're boiling it down to make it sort of interesting, and you can follow here on Legal AF. But the rea- the result is the following. If they had sided with Nichols, and if this three-judge panel, by majority vote, had ruled that that obstruction count for that, that scenario couldn't be used for any Jan 6th prosecution, that not only means future indictments, that means everybody who got convicted of it, or maybe even pled guilty, we'd have to talk about that, would have their, possibly have their convictions vacated and and uh, maybe a do-over in a trial if there was a trial setting. So it would have been disastrous, apocalyptic results, and the Department of Justice would have lost a giant hammer in their arsenal because we're not done. Everybody forgets it's we, the first thousand are in, but the Department of Justice has said we're still working round the clock. And Ben, I learned something new from the briefing. Um, maybe we could put the cover of the brief up. There is under Merrick Garland a capital 
siege section that has been created at the Department of Justice. And the lawyers that argued this brief are the chief and an attorney for the capital siege section of the Department of Justice. That means there's a group of people that all they do morning, noon, and night, from the moment they get up in the morning to the time they hit their, their head on the pillow, is nothing but capital siege investigation, prosecution. And there's another thousand people who think they got away with it. They haven't been captured yet and arrested yet, but the Department of Justice is coming for them because we know it, because they told the chief judge, get ready, we're going to need more resources. We may bring another thousand through over the next year. You think about special counsel Jack Smith's toolkit also in his criminal investigations of Donald Trump. If he had lost that ability to bring an obstruction of official proceeding count against Donald Trump, that's likely to be one of the main charges ultimately brought against Donald Trump. And Salty, if you pull that statute up one more time, this 18 U.S.C. 1512C, which is the obstruction of official uh, proceeding, which says, this is what it says, Whoever corruptly won, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or, two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes, impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So an important point here is that it carries with it a 20-year prison sentence, which is one of the most potent weapons uh, other than a seditious conspiracy charge that could be used by prosecutors. But when you go through the statute, when you look at how Judge Carl Nichols uh, made the argument, it, it actually just makes no sense. You, ha you would have to take out the word or and then literally cross out subsection 2 and just read it as the only thing that exists is subsection 1 about and then take out some of the other words and just say whoever corruptly destroys a document uh, would, be, would be subject to the obstruction of an official proceeding charge. That's just not what it says, so much so that the insurrectionists who were making the argument to Judge Carl Nichols and who made the argument before the Court of Appeals, even they, and this is what you were pointing out, Popak, they didn't argue that Judge Carl Nichols was right because they knew that or that was a, I'm not sure how we won, re, this was their honest thinking. Not sure how we won that one. So I don't think we could go in on this whole document. Even the court, just, or, Pan said it was a half-hearted defense of Judge Nichols. They went off in a different direction. They went in the direction that they went is they were just saying, hey, um, if you just have obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding, what does that really mean? You know, it has to be narrower than just anything. Like, and the and the court was like, no, no, it's not anything. Like, what you did on January sixth is exactly the conduct that that statute is trying to protect against, and it's exactly the type of conduct that um, you know that that is being criminalized. And you mentioned these insurrectionists were among some of the worst, most violent and vile and yeah. violent of the insurrectionists. But Popak, speaking which, which, of... Which, by the way, many of them, just to, to round out this circle, square the circle, many of them are part of the Jan 6 choir because they're still sitting in, in uh, the jail in D.C. Because, they, because of what they did 
including at least two of the three of them. The reason Nichols got wrapped around the axle in his analysis, because he wanted, it was, as you like to say in the past, Ben, it was a results-driven um, decision. He wanted to get rid of this um, and didn't want the Department of Justice to use it, so he tried to justify it. It was originally passed to fight white-collar crime. When Enron went down, the big scandal uh, of a phony company that wasn't really generating proper revenue and was hiding it from its investors, they were also investigated by Congress. And before they could get to Congress, they destroyed um, documents that should have been produced to Congress and otherwise. And there was that destruction of the documents that Nichols got all wrapped up in applying it here. But that's not what the statute says. The statute doesn't say in its preamble or by people that passed it, Congress, um, this will only apply to a similar corporate matter where a company or a corporation. No, it's on the books. And it gets to be applied, to, as long as the elements are met, to all different scenarios that may come up including the one that we couldn't even have contemplated back when this was passed after Enron, which was that there was going to be 2,000 Americans who were going to siege and attack the Capitol in order to stop the, the peaceful transfer of power. But there was, a, there was a, a crime on the books that fit the bill when it came time to the charging document for the indictment. And, you know, speaking, I was talking about how, you know, these insurrectionists are so vile and, you know, speaking of just vile, vile things, I mean, this Trump-appointed judge in Texas who gave this tortured interpretation of the Administrative Procedures Act and extended statute of limitations into 2023 to block the FDA's approval of the abortion pill from 2000 and... Then shortly thereafter, thankfully, um, a judge issued an order basically saying the exact opposite, compelling the FDA to make sure that they do not change a thing regarding the abortion pill. And, and so you have these conflicting rulings. I want to break that down. And, and just how is it that a Trump-appointed federal judge can do this? How could one federal judge have this power? Lots of people are even just asking that more basic question. We'll talk about that right after this break. Let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Zbiotics. Now, if you're like me, you've probably skipped a workout because of drinks the night before. Like, it happens. But if you're committed to your healthy routine, you need Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you Drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Now, I can't lie, after we hit 1 million subscribers, I may have partied a little bit too much that night. But luckily, I knew I had Zbiotics. Now, as instructed, I drank a bottle of Zbiotics before any alcohol, and I was amazed at just how good I felt the next day. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com slash legalaf to get 15% off your first order when you use Legal AF at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So remember, head to zbiotics.com slash Legal AF 
and use the code LEGALAF at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode. Our next partner is AG1 by Athletic Greens. Now, I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted better gut health, boosted energy, immune system support, and I hated taking pills and vitamins and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. I take AG1 in the morning before working out, and it makes me feel incredible and just ready to take on my day. When I take AG1, I know I'm doing something good for my body, like giving my body the nutrition that it craves and covering my nutritional bases. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there, but this is different, and the ingredients are super high quality. I got started with AG1 because I used to take all these different pills and gummies, and frankly, what I was taking was expensive, and I didn't even know if it was good for me. But with AG1 by Athletic Greens, I know that what I'm consuming has the best ingredients and also tastes delicious. AG1 makes it easier for you to take the highest quality supplements, period. When I started my AG1 journey, very quickly I noticed that it helps me with you know, improved overall digestion, my energy levels were up, and just overall I was feeling great. It's just one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day, and it's a seamless and easy daily habit to maintain. The Midas Mighty asks me all the time, Jordy, how do you have so much energy to do these ad reads? Well, if I could only pick one thing, it's AG1 by Athletic Greens. Just one daily serving covers my day's nutritional basis and supports my long-term gut health with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust the product so much. If you're looking for a simpler, cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash legalaf. That's athleticgreens.com slash legalaf. Check it out. And now, back to the video. I plan on getting into a car accident. When I did, I'm glad that I called Joe Brown and his team at Accident Logger. As a former insurance adjuster, I know what the insurance company is going to do before they do it. In an accident, call Accident Law Group or visit us on the web at accidentlawgroup.com. And now, back to the video. Welcome back to Legal AF. Ben Micellis here with Michael Popak. On Friday, uh, two orders were handed down, conflicting dueling orders, one from a federal judge in the Northern District of Texas, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, a Trump appointee, another from a judge, a federal judge in the Eastern District of Washington State, Thomas Rice, an Obama appointee, um, that say completely conflicting things, meaning that this will uh, eventually likely be fast-tracked uh, to go before uh, the United States Supreme Court. First, this, this idea, though, is how can a federal judge issue a nationwide injunction? The short of it is that they actually have that power. A federal judge has the power one single federal judge sitting in the Eastern District of Texas or the Northern District of Texas or the Eastern District of Washington or whatever district court in any state has the power to issue nationwide injunctions. It has been criticized as a practice, but it is something that federal judges are permitted to do. So whether we like that or not, and I don't think we like that, but that is something that they are permitted to do. Um, but just so you know, that is a power that they have. Um, another piece of information about Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, um, 
he's the only judge, and Popak, correct me if I'm wrong here, who sits in this specific division within this district in the Northern you're, District of you're, Texas. You're 95% right. Every 95% of the cases in Amarillo, Texas division get assigned to Casmeric. I think there's one senior status judge that takes a very small amount. So you've got a 95% hit rate if you're trying to forum shop and place your case in front of Casmeric. And so by forum shopping, that means exactly what it sounds, right? Like if you are a right-wing group that wants to make sure that a woman can control her body, what you do is you shop your case, literally. You file your case in this one area where pretty much you know you're going to get Judge Kosmerich. And Judge Kosmerich has a history of saying some of the most despicable things about LGBTQ plus people. Um, he is stridently opposed to women having control over their bodies. He is, he is handmaid's tale extreme, and he is someone who Trump appointed and the right-wing uh, senators pushed through to uh, a confirmation. And so this case went before him, um, we've been hearing about the oral arguments, and it was kind of fait accompli, right? We, we almost knew the outcome once this case was brought before this judge. And on Friday, we got the ruling that he ruled that the 2000 order from the FDA, 2023 years ago, that the FDA's approval of Mifepristone would be blocked, the abortion would be blocked. We know for a long time it's been safe. We know its efficacy has been proven. In fact, one of the way the judge dealt with the statute of limitations in the order, which to kind of challenge an administrative order, there's a six-year statute of limitations. The further findings of its efficacy over time, and as more kind of generic drugs were brought to the market later and further approvals were made, because over the years more science has developed the efficacy of the drug and how safe it is. Well... Judge Kaczmarek basically used that to toll or continue the statute of limitations to basically say, that's why I can go back to 2000 to block the FDA, because the FDA also talked about this in 2017 and 2019 and 2021. But, the, but I want to go back to what they did in 2000, and I'm going to say that that was arbitrary and capricious administrative rulemaking. So me, the judge, I'm going to substitute my knowledge for the actions of an administrative agency, the FDA, and their rulemaking procedures, and why. And this part of the analysis, Popak, I don't think has really been discussed anywhere because you really got to get into the 67-page order uh, to see it. But this is basically what the analysis hinges on when he's saying that the FDA acted arbitrarily and capriciously in 2000 for uh, approving this drug. And this is the portion right here where in the order it goes, when the FDA originally approved it, the agency relied upon subpart H, to place certain restrictions on the manufacturer's distribution of the drug product to assure its safe use. Thus, to satisfy Part H, FDA deemed pregnancy a serious or life-threatening illness and concluded that mifepristone provided meaningful therapeutic benefit to patients over existing treatments because the FDA characterized pregnancy as being something that is serious or life-threatening. And then the judge goes, but pregnancy is not that. 
the judge, this male judge, goes, pregnancy is just a normal physiological state most women experience one or more times during their child-bearing years. And on that basis, the judge said, FDA should not have made this rule to satisfy this subpart H because pregnancies, they're just normal physiological things that women have to go through and they are not serious uh, physical conditions. And, and on that basis, you know, the, the analysis gets a little more developed than that, but the court basically says it's arbitrary and capricious. Um, so I am not, we're going to rule that when the FDA put forward that rule, they didn't have the power to do it, thus blocking it. But Popak, it didn't end there. Then there was a, a ruling from the judge from the Eastern District of Washington. So can you talk about these conflicting rulings now yeah. and what it means? Well, let me start back with Cosmeric for a minute and the forum shopping that's going on. The Department of Justice has called this out and has actually filed motions in front of Cosmeric to argue there is no good reason why cases like the medicated abortion case is in front of a Texas judge in Amarillo. For example, um, basically abortion is outlawed in the state of Texas by SBA. I mean, it's down to like six weeks or less. Um, the, the plaintiff here, which is this made-up entity called the Alliance of Hippocratic Medicine, a doctor near Amarillo who says his practice of medicine will somehow be impacted by the ruling. He lives in a state and operates in a state where they don't even allow the pills. They don't allow the abortion pills and they don't allow abortion. So why are we in Amarillo? Why aren't we in Maryland where the FDA sits? Or why aren't we at least somewhere where the abortion pills are dispensed? Why? Because there is a friendly judge sitting in Amarillo where you have a 95% chance of getting him. The judge should never have taken this case. It should have been removed from his courtroom, but he doesn't want it. He wants the case. He wants to do policymaking, which is really for Congress to do, not for judges to do. And he wants to do it in the areas of women's rights, LGBTQ+, um, all the things that he was against when he was um, the general counsel for a super right-wing entity called the First Liberty Institute, which got on the on the uh, on the uh, hit parade, the claim to fame, because they're the ones that opposed Obamacare having an, a, a a right of a woman to get contraception care. They wanted that removed from Obamacare, and he's been on the wrong side of a number of decisions at the Supreme Court level who have slapped him back and said, you shouldn't even have made these rulings. There's even a very good argument, Ben, that will come up on the appeal. I'll talk about that next when I talk about the Washington state ruling that happened four hours after his ruling, is that in order to find that there is, um, that there is a live controversy or a case that's appropriately before a U.S. Constitution Article Three federal judge, the, 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 first, the first key into the courthouse, the first ticket into the courthouse, you've got to have standing. You've got to have an injury that's personal to you that's different than the general public. What injury does a doctor sitting near Amarillo, Texas, in a state where there's no abortion allowed and no pills are being distributed, have to be able to bring this case. It doesn't matter to Kazmarek, because Kazmarek is just looking for any case to come before him so he can make these social policy, religious-infused rulings 
and then bind the whole country in a national band and, 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 and all the women related to it. He had, and in order to do that, he not only had to ignore the proper rulemaking 20 years ago by the FDA, but he'd have to ignore, uh, as the New York Times reported, um, really good reporting by Amy Walker, Malika Karana, and Ashley Wu, there's been over 100 scientific studies in 26 countries involving 124,000 medicated abortions. And they have found that in 99% of the cases, there are no serious complications. And in the course of the difference between childbirth, which Judge Kaczmarek, Ben, you just pointed out, says it's just an ordinary, normal thing that women do during their childbearing years, there is a higher risk of death in childbirth by four times than there is in medicated pregnancy using these pills. The chance of death in a medicated, uh, a medicated uh, abortion is 0.31%, and it's 1.4% if you're, if you're having a baby, if you will. Out of the entire history of the use of these pills, from 2000 until 2022, which was the last time, there have been 5.6 million women, because these pills, medicated abortion, 57% of the time is the, is the method of choice for women to use for abortion, okay? not going to a clinic. In, in those 5.6 million cases in 22 years, there were 28 deaths. It's terrible for the families of those 28 people, but statistically, it's 0.005%. Viagra is more dangerous. Tylenol is more dangerous. This is the drug that the judge has decided needs to be banned nationwide from women to use. The So he sits in the Fifth Circuit, which you and I have talked a lot about. That sits generally in New Orleans. That covers Texas. It is right-wing MAGA conservative. Some of the wackiest, craziest rulings come out of the Fifth Circuit. So the appeal that the, that the uh, Department of Justice says they are going to take is going to have to probably, I'll give you another example of, of another creative way, probably have to go to the Fifth Circuit first, take another loss there, and then an appeal to the Supreme Court. But the one wrinkle here is there is Washington State, which sits in the Ninth Circuit, which is the circuit that California also sits in. That judge said, not on my watch. In fact, I'm ordering in a, a 17th state um, injunction, a mandatory injunction, that the FDA continue to s authorize, and, and it would be illegal under the, that order for them to stop um, uh, distributing uh, methoprestone and the sec basically what's called the second drug in the two-drug requirement for medicated abortions. So now you've got this competing district court judges. You don't have a competing split of the circuits, as we like to say, because the Ninth Circuit hasn't ruled yet and the Fifth Circuit hasn't ruled yet. If they were to rule, it's an automatic get to the Supreme Court for a ruling. But there is an ability to sort of try to skip the Fifth Circuit and even the Ninth Circuit and try to take an emergency appeal to this Supreme Court. Problem with that is it could be shot back to them as it was in SBA in the, the Department of Justice's attempt to reverse the bounty hunter law that stopped abortion basically in the state of Texas, and that didn't work for them there. And they have already, having gone through SB8 and the Dobbs decision, and they know that Alito seems to be the moral, uh, the, the moral power on that court, 
and I'll talk about Alito in a minute, I'm not sure they think they got the numbers on the court. They're going to take the appeal anyway. They're going to set this case up. But I think the Department of Justice is is a little bit nervous, uh, and that's an understatement, about what will happen at the Supreme Court on this ruling. If they say, well, abortion is abortion, and there's no constitutional right to abortion, so uh, I don't know what the FDA is doing handing out abortion drugs. That could be the way that Supreme Court goes. Alito is, again, the kingmaker here. Um, another, as you like to say, another white guy who can't produce a baby making decisions for women.